Hi, I'm Glenn Harper, CPA and owner of Harper & Company, CPAs Plus, and partner in Sula Consulting. In each episode, my co-host, Julie Smith, Harper & Company's practice manager and partner in Sula Consulting, and I will interview a different guest about their entrepreneurial journey. The podcast features interviews with business owners, aka entrepreneurs, who bring intriguing and entertaining clarity to the entire entrepreneurial journey, giving others confidence to build their business. Our goal is to provide actionable value to you, the entrepreneur, to help you do business or build a business. Every entrepreneur deserves to enjoy the journey. Learning from others offers valuable insight and inspiration. We want to provide insight on the why, the how, the shortcuts, and the value add that many entrepreneurs wish they would have had identified at the onset of their journey. Sit back and enjoy the journey. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Empowering Entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Glenn Harper. My co-host is... Julie Smith. What's up, Julie? You know, I got some feedback this week um, from some people that I work out with that said, I only talk about the weather, coffee, and and some other things. So I'm taking all, all options that can be talked about, I guess. Oh, how is the weather out there today? It's cold and I hate it, so I don't even mm, want to talk about that's it. That's not bad today. Got some good co- coffee this morning. Looks like you're double fisted over there. You got two things, I which have is nice. Two coffees. So must have must have had a a long night or uh, something. Well, well, it can happen. Well, we're excited today. We've got a, a fellow entrepreneur on, on on course today to chat with us. Named Zach Geist. He's a driving force behind Student Loan Tutor and Holistic Finance. He's helped many college student manage their school debt from repayment to forgiveness. Thanks, Zach, for being on our show. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I. I detect a slight Polynesian accent. Did you spend some time in Hawaii or something? Yeah, definitely not Polynesian. <laughs> I was conceived in Hawaii. See? Thank goodness I'm not in Hawaii right now because it'd be like 3.30 in the morning. So I planted, I planned this uh, when I was in Utah. So my, my main offices, uh, I have two companies uh, that are based in Utah, and then I have two companies that are based in Hawaii. So I split my time between both of them. That's but funny. I got just enough lack of sleep to to look like it's 3.30 in the morning because uh, one of my businesses ran until about 1 a.m. I should have night. given you my extra coffee through the... I think that's what yeah. it's for. I think, <laughs> I think this you is were, good. we're feeling that. But uh, my partner here is making my, my coffee right now. So uh, it's 7, 7.30 in the morning. So it's actually quite late for me generally. Not too shabby. I, I hear that you're from San Francisco, which I believe is just east of Vladivostok. Is that true? Uh, east of Vladivostok. It's yeah. interesting that, that you say it's east of Vladivostok. My grandfather's from from Vladivostok. I love it. It's the, the southernmost port city in Russia. I always, as a kid growing up, I just thought it was a cool name, a cool town. So yeah, I thought we'd roll <laughs> that just in. So, so synchronistic that you would yes. mention Vladivostok because you had no idea my grandfather was from there. No, I did so not. Nobody knows that. So. I know. What are the odds? Oh, yeah. goodness. Well, what was it? Uh, so you're born in Hawaii, then you moved to the Bay Area. How'd that happen? Conceived. I can see why see, you ah. say that. I, I have to come with some connection to Hawaii. Yes. I was actually born in San Mateo, right out of San Francisco. But conceived means that like my fam- my parents had sex there. Uh, so apparently that means, uh, according to the Hawaiians, from what I understand, which isn't a whole lot, is uh, that that means that's where your soul enters the world. But they believe everybody's soul enters the world in Hawaii. So that means you as well. Well, does that mean you're? Uh, I know in Hawaii, you're, you. It's hard to be treated as local if you're not like local. So I assume that you're treated like you're local there. I'm not treated like I'm Dang. local. Like my life is a dedication to try to get treated like I'm local. Uh, but growing up where I grew up, I also uh, didn't. I had to kind of earn those stripes uh, in that in that area too. So I do that through uh, farming. Uh, I have a farm as well. 
a full production farm, a regenerative farm where we practice sustainable building. We have an eco village. Uh, we hold events there. We hold retreats there. It's 86 acres with cascading waterfalls. And uh, we grow hundreds of different uh, tropical fruit trees. We're fully food, energy, and water sovereign, which is uh, what I call experiential capital. And uh, I'm kind of my main, one of my main, many, I have many interests and I've kind of converted them into businesses uh, is to help people uh, view capital in different ways. So they're not looking at just financial capital. Uh, financial capital essentially is an abstract uh, 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 piece that has moved from the natural world uh, into, into the world of capitalism, which is great in a lot of ways, but at the same time, uh, there's things that we could do that we really enjoy. And that's kind of people, I think, forget so much like what the purpose of money is and it's to, to spend it, to, to create things that people experientially enjoy. I hope I didn't stumble over that too much. No, I think you're right. I think the whole purpose of working for a living is to have the, the money or the means to do the things you really love to do. And if you're so lucky that you end up with a career that you actually enjoy and that's fun to you, that's the double whammy, but it's it's hard to do that, and especially as an entrepreneur, because we're, we're working so hard all the time, it's really hard to step back and enjoy a little bit. And I think a lot of people like to like eat and sleep and do fun things and uh, and eat at restaurants, and it's hard to uh, build a business around those things. Although it would provide a lot of write offs because a lot of people eat out a lot. <laughs> well, you know, who doesn't love a good meal? Especially if you don't have to cook and clean up. Of course, there is fun to, like you said, with you know, I grew up on a farm myself, and you know, when you grow your own food and you prep it, you cook it and eat it, it's a pretty satisfying cycle. Um, if you just go in and just get served to you, that's a whole different feeling, which isn't bad either. That's a good one, too. I don't know. I've had both. I kind of like the latter. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of work. I mean, there's it's funny. There, it's It's quite funny, actually. I'll look out my window in Hawaii and I'll see a coconut tree as I'm opening up a can of coconut milk. And I just feel kind of absurd, but I mean, you look at the fact that, uh, you know, division of labor and, you know, exportation of costs, it's actually like cheaper and more convenient to get the can of coconut milk that has somehow been, you know, harvested in Thailand and then like packaged in a factory and like shipped to like three different locations, arrived in a store. I'm in a car, I pick it up, I bring it back, I use a can opener. And somehow that's faster and easier than climbing the tree that's right outside of uh, my window. But now I plant trees that only grow uh, till about, the they fruit at about waist or knee height. So I actually have to bend over and harvest the coconuts uh, as opposed to climbing a tree. So I'm looking forward to that changing where it's actually more convenient. It's a whole bonsai uh, forest? Coconut. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could prune it prune it low, which is important. Well, that's Less exciting. Less work. I think a lot of people make their, their uh, entrepreneurship uh, more hard than it needs to be. And there are smart ways to do it. They apply this idea of just like, I, I call it the Deadpool idea that, that from the Marvel universe, mm -hmm. is they just feel like they have to apply maximum effort and I find that that's almost always not the best way to go about it. It is weird the when you finally realize as an entrepreneur that it's, you know, you have to have passion and work ethic and things, but it's not how necessarily how hard you work. You do have to work hard, but it's how smart you work. And then that's not just your skills. It's leveraging all the people around you. But Zach, how long did that take you to come to that conclusion? It can't be something that just came to your soul in Hawaii. It's a funny story. I, I remember the moment I came to that. It's a funny story if you want to hear it. I was Absolutely. quite young. I, 
I was, I, I, I must've been like 10 or 11 years old. Uh, I've been kind of starting businesses. I didn't know that I would call it that, but I've been doing that since maybe I was five. I read actually in, in, uh, uh, Warren Buffett's book, snowball that he used to sell golf balls. Um, and I actually started to do that when I was like five, I would swim in this, there was a swimming pool and there was a golf course nearby. And I would swim in there and I'd get golf balls out. Originally, I didn't even do it for the money. I just thought it was like cool that they had all these different Mm -hmm. colored golf balls. So I was just collecting them. I'm like, it's free golf balls. I mean, I I guess I'm a kid, so it looks less ridiculous than a grown man in a polo shirt, you know, in the middle of his, you know, uh, I don't golf. So (laughs) you'd think that I'd pick it up, but I just could never get into it. Didn't have the pace. I like things that are much faster paced than golf. Um, so I would sell golf balls and at some other point I started to sell candy at school. I mean, that's pretty much what I realized entrepreneurship was about. It's about finding something that people need and finding a way to fulfill that need. And, and at school, uh, people like kids like candy. So I would buy candy at, you know, Costco for pretty cheap and I'd buy candy and with a, with a big markup. And, uh, some of those candies were like airheads and I'd have, you know, a five times markup, 500% markup. So I wanted to sell those. Uh, although I would carry stuff that maybe didn't have the markup because people would come to me, but I'd be out of those. I only carry so much. And uh, I went to a school that uh, it was, I, I had kind of a rough upbringing. I, I, I would grow up, I grew up in what people would call the ghetto, I guess. And um, so I remember that a lot of times some of the kids would say, hey, can I, you know, get some candy and pay you later? And I would know that they're never going to pay me. Mm-hmm. And and I and I would kind of like put up with that. It was like, you know, it was like shrinkage in a store. And uh, one day uh, I remember the girl, her name was Angelica and she comes up and she just didn't even respect the idea of it. She's just like, give me candy. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not going to just give you candy. Like, can you pay me later? At least I could like pretend I'm going to get paid. And she's like, no, give me candy. And so I didn't, I'm in class. And, and I'm not kidding you here. This is intense. I, I hope, I don't know if this is going to oh, yeah. be like, have to be edited, but she stabs me in the neck with a compass. I mean, it was like a prison movie. You know, the compass yeah. you draw circles yep. with in school and I'm bleeding out of my neck. And uh, anyways, I end up getting called to the office and I'm thinking they're, they're going to just, you know, suspend her or do something, arrest her. The police are going to come. But apparently um, I was a big problem and they didn't know who was selling the candy because no one like actually <laughs> narked me out. But like parents were calling because I was actually like trading candy for lunch coupons and then selling the lunch coupon. I was making more money than my mom. And I'm like here in junior high. And uh, yeah. They said if they caught me selling candy again at school, uh, that I would be like expelled. And here I am, like, I'm like, I don't know, 11. I don't know what to do. And like, I'm, I'm like, pretty much everybody's just going to steal candy from me at this point. So I had this, I, I, at first I was kind of depressed and I was, you know, like Scrooge McDuck in my room while I was suspended, you know, rolling around in the money because I saw it on DuckTales, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, reading my comic books. And I had like a hundred Nintendo games because what else does a kid do? They convert it into entertainment capital because all the kids in the neighborhood stopped picking on me and beating me up because they wanted to play my video games and read my comic books. So it was like safety. Uh, and I think I've that that's been part of my story. But long story short, how I decided to uh, to work smart is I'm like, well, I, okay, I can't sell candy. How am I going to make money? And I said, well, what if other people would be willing to sell candy for me? And so I went back to the school, and the school was broken up into families. So I only really had access to one of the families, and then I think two during lunchtime. And so I had. I met up with a kid from each family. I'm like, hey, do you want to sell candy for me? I'll supply it. You can have as much candy as you want. I'll buy you lunch. I'll get you lunch coupons. We'll sell other stuff. 
And to my great surprise, people were totally willing to sign up for this. And so I actually made way more money after I had way less risk. And I had like personal bodyguards at school. And I was like popular instead of like out there personally hustling. And I, I applied this to pretty much all aspects of my life. My first main business that I owned was a door-to-door sales I company. I got to interrupt yeah. you because I got I have two sure. pressing questions. Number one, yeah. you're bleeding out in the principal's office and they're worried about you hustling. They're not giving you medical attention. <laughs> That's the first they thing. Were. It's I know. Apparently, I was a major problem. I didn't know this, but like 60% of, cho- of, of children's uh, uh, nutrition in like the ghetto and like low-income areas comes from their school lunch. So I was like totally like this terrible capitalist, you know, <laughs> taking nutrition from, from kids that, by trading candy for lunch coupons. Well, that begets the second question. Is, <laughs> are you using candy as a metaphor? What were you really hustling? Because this is, you know, this I tried that later. I'll, I'll be honest. <laughs> I tried that later, but I, I was, there was a lot more stiff, violent, cruel mm. uh, competition that, that didn't really want me involved in that. So that's, they put a stop to that real quick. That's a different turf Thank war. goodness. Yeah, Thank a, goodness, that's too. A, that's so a, I've always sold legal things, except for like maybe a few day stint yeah. where I made an attempt at, at uh, you know, now it's legal in California. Heck, right. everything in Oakland is decriminalized. So I could have pretty much sold anything. So thank goodness I didn't grow up in today's day and age. Um, you know, it's funny how that works. But yeah, to survive and get what you need, you got to do what you got to do. But again, Again, you're like, I mean, talk about uh, a, a down network, how you could do that and not just, you know, do it yourself. You literally had a whole down network, network marketing. That's fantastic. Yeah, and that, that's where I was going with it. My my first business that I started was a door-to-door sales business. It's like the only job I could get. I had kind of like broken teeth from growing up. I had to, I probably spent like $50,000 on my teeth. I really had to work my way out of this. It was, you know, and I started a door-to-door business. I was making $100,000 a year at 18. Uh, By the time I was 23, I was running door-to-door sales teams for a company, making about a quarter million. By the time I was 26, uh, I was a millionaire doing door-to-door sales, running. At that point, I had my own business. And by the time I was 27, you know, I had an almost eight-figure year that year. And I mean, this is with no college education, basically a 10th grade education. I took my high school proficiency test uh, because school was straight up, like living where I was living was like straight up dangerous. And I'm like, this is crazy. I'm learning stuff that I, I don't really feel like I could apply. There was probably valuable things to learn there. I, you know, ironically, now I work primarily with doctors and people with graduate degrees, helping them manage all aspects of their finance. Um, and that story, you know, that that comes much later. In the beginning, I'm just like, I've got to make money any way I could make it. Cause my goal was just to get out of the hood. That was my that was my mm-hmm. whole main aim. And uh, I tried to do that as pr- prematurely as possible. You know, I, I rented a place that was like 100% of my income just so I could like feel yeah. like I was successful and I was out. You know, what's funny about that is, you know, when you have a, a childhood like that and, you know, there's a lot of people out there that had some rough childhoods, but you you can't be stopped. I mean, when you grow up like that, like somebody telling you no at a door to door or somebody telling you can't do something, you're like, whatever. And you just skip. It doesn't even phase you. Right. Like it, what's it the does, worst it, that It's happen? an interesting thing. People are like, how did you do that? And I'm like, it was the craziest thing. I mean, because I trained 20,000 door to door sales reps over my career. I mean, I've that's an estimate, but it's somewhere around there. I just calculated, you know, on average, how many did I train per week or whatever? And it's about 20,000. And the most common reason they weren't successful uh, was that they were scared of rejection. And for me, um, it was incomprehensible. Like I didn't like I didn't understand it. It's like, wait, like 
why do you care if a stranger says no or like get off my porch? Like it, it was a concept that it took me a long time to grasp because for me, I didn't have it. I didn't like, I didn't have the fear there. So for me, I remember I'm like, why doesn't everybody do this? It was a crazy feeling. And like, I would start at like 9 a.m. And other people would only work from four to eight. And I'd be like out there at 9 a.m. I'd win every sales contest. And they're like, why? Do, like, I would just listen to music. You know, I'm like, nah, what? I'm going to be at home, like playing what? Playing video games? Or I'm, I might as well just walk around. Yeah, hardly anybody's home, but I'm still making it. Whatever at that time, you know, 60 bucks an hour at 18. I'm like, why it's, not? It's hard to even comprehend that there, you found somebody you could sell door to door. I didn't know people are home. I didn't know people open their doors. Um, like nobody <laughs> stops. This in. is an idea yeah. of working smart and not yeah, hard. So bizarre. Uh, th this is, this is a great, this is one of those great examples of just thinking a little bit differently, which seems to be the thing that happens. The thing that really works. Um, I sold uh, telecommunications. So it was, it was right when internet was launching. So, uh, cable TV, internet and home phone. And I didn't know anything about cable. Um, I, I, I knew that internet was fast. I didn't even have it. I, didn't, I was always working, so I didn't have a need for it. I did door-to-door -door sales. We need internet at your home when you're out in the field. And then home phone, like I knew it was like a phone, you pick it up and somehow it was clearer. And uh, so at the beginning, I was noticing I was getting rejection and like people were like, oh no, before I could even say a word. And then I'm like, well, wait a second. How do I outsmart this? And so I did the craziest thing. I like took a shirt and I rubbed it in the dirt because I noticed that they didn't like reject outright the guy who's coming to install the cable. So I'm like, I'm going to dress like I'm installing cable. I got a tool belt. I put tools in it. I put like a hard hat on sometimes. I had like this, like the glasses, like I'd be out. Like I looked like I hopped off of like a telephone line pole or whatever. And so I'd show up. I wouldn't even make eye contact. I'd be 10 feet back on my phone talking like it was Nextel at the time, you know, like, oh yeah, I'm here at one, two, three Elm street. Yeah. I just finished talking to, you know, Bob Smith that lives next door. And so the person answers the door and they're like in this state of mind of like total curiosity, who is this quagmire that's at my front door? So they didn't have the, uh, what I would call a conditioned responsive rejection. Mm -hmm. So my closing rate was through the roof. Cause once they heard that I had like six months free internet to give them, then like they were open to it. Most of the rejection came just like as like a standard response for someone knocking on the door because that's just what they do. So I didn't trigger that neural pathway. And I trained my salespeople to do the same thing. And I have a funny story where I was in this guy's house in this really rich area where nobody wanted to sell. And this guy looks down because I guess he knew what tools were. I didn't know what tools were. I grew up in the hood. I didn't have any like thing to fix, you know? I couldn't change a doorknob if I tried. And he goes, why do you have a water wrench in your tool belt? Like, what do you need that for? And I go, oh, I don't know. This is <laughs> this is just for show. I'm a salesperson. And he's like, I had no idea. Um, so um, I had a lot of cool things happen to me over the time. I did got he like buy offered from a you? free scholarship. Huh? Did he, he did, of course. Almost everybody did. It was very rare that someone didn't buy for me. So it made it easier too. So not only was I not afraid of rejection, eventually I got good at it. And the better you get, the less rejection you get. So it's this positive feedback loop and people just got to stick with it till they get there. Well, I think the the notes to take for people who are listening is is everybody thinks when you're an entrepreneur, there's no sales involved and it's all sales. And and if you can get really good, it's marketing and then the sales will happen. But when you're at that level, it's you, you got to sell and 
you just got to believe in what you're doing. And, you know, again, you didn't even know what the heck it was that you were selling, but I it literally, cool. I didn't even know. I didn't know. And it was like a total drug dealer thing. I didn't even have the thing I was selling. I mean, now I own the largest student loan uh, advisory company in the nation for the last 10 years. Uh, my corporate offices are here in Salt Lake City, but I have people located all over the world. And I don't, I've never had a student loan, you know? So uh, for whatever reason, here I am, you know, it, you know, selling something that, you know, uh, uh, something that benefits people. And when I started, this is a question that, you know, I, I think people misunderstand that what is really enjoyable isn't like turning a hobby, like Joseph Campbell, the mythologist talks about turning, following your bliss. And I feel like what people think is like, if I love like gardening, I should turn it into a business. If I mm -hmm. love DJing, I should turn it into a business. A lot of times that'll actually maybe kill or stifle Correct. that. I mean, don't stop doing that. But what I figured out is I said, I want to do something. I, I started this last business with a criterion. And I said, I want to do something that is, a, at first I wanted to do something that's morally good. But if you try to do that, it's very difficult to find something that's actually morally good where you're like, like, even if you're like, I'm going to do something great. Like, it's also like putting a whole bunch of people out of business when you interrupt it. Like, I'm going to start Turo. But you're like, but wait, I'm about to put like every taxi cab driver out of the, or, or a Lyft or Uber. I'm going to put all the taxi cab drivers out of business, you know, or whatever it is. But I'm going to do, I'm going to do something at least morally neutral where I'm not making a negative impact on people and society and other businesses. And then I'm like, I want to solve a need of people like that are actually suffering. I want to be able to earn money that continuously scales. And I want to be able to work anytime from anywhere. And I want to offer a similar opportunity for those that work with me. And that was where I started. I didn't start like, I have this interest and I'm going to do it. So I was looking at like things like helping people through, you know, rehab recovery. Like that's kind of where I got. It was like rehab recovery or student loans was like the final two, but there was a whole bunch of things before then. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's really important when people are looking to start a business and I'd recommend start any business because there's 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 things that you could learn. And I wouldn't, I don't know. I learned a lot from network marketing too over the years because a lot of people say that's a business. And I did learn a lot, but I do think there's a real big value in starting your own business. Some people make, make it super successful in network marketing. I know people that have made ridiculous fortunes in network marketing. So it does happen. Yeah, it comes down to about if you've got customers, uh, when you show up and you're going to sell them internet, well, then you might as well sell them a phone. Then you might as well clean their gutters. Then you might as well figure out something else to do. So when you have customers, <laughs> opportunity abounds, right? And, you know, on that, uh, the note you said about, you know, trying to decide that, you know, a, a hobby or a passion, when you have to do it to make money, it, you kind of tense up. You're not your normal self anymore because you got the pressure on you. You can't think creatively anymore because you, you got to make the money. And it's, entrepreneurism is not about the money. It's about doing something you love and helping people, right? And the money will come. But if, if you change that passion to something different, that that's a whole different game. It's, it's hard to make money at something because you have to, that used to be your fun thing. Totally. And I think uh, there's a great book. It's so simple. And I think that's why it's so great and so successful. Uh, it's a book by Robert Kiyosaki uh, called Rich Dad, Poor mm -hmm. Dad. I think every entrepreneur I mean, and if you're highly erudite and, you know, educated, uh, it might just be so plain and simple that you're just like, ah, this is hard to read. Like, I think right now, if someone gave me that book, I'd be like, I need it to be way more complicated, you know, but the, the fundamentals are so key. I remember reading that book when I was 18 uh, and all of a sudden it made the whole world make sense. It's like, it was like the, whatever, the blue or the red pill, ever the one that takes you to that place where you find mm -hmm. out what's really going on. I'm like, 
That's how everybody's successful is that they're building. And it comes down to this. Are you hauling buckets in your life or are you building pipelines? Because you're going to be doing both uh, at some point. But most people don't ever build the pipeline. Or if they do, they only do it through like planning for retirement where they, you know, where they, which is important. Uh, But I think that you could build your whole process around building pipelines. But that's hard. It is hard. hard It's because it's slow. Everybody's looking at you going like, why are you working all the time? You're like making less than, you know, so-and-so at their job. But once the pipeline's built and you turn that water spout on, you know, nobody could haul buckets faster than the pipeline. Then, then your pipeline could push water out. So Zach, I'm going to go back, you know, at 18, you, you decided to take this leap of faith. You got to make this money before that or, or during that. Did you have someone that was a mentor that someone that just stepped up to the plate that was your rock solid that kept, kept you going or you just did that all by yourself? You know, I, I, I wish I could say I did the closest thing I had. I had books. Uh, I, I, I'd say one of my big inspirations, um, I did meet him eventually, but I didn't know, I didn't have anybody like, Hey, like taking me under my wing. That's been part of my story. And some people, you know, they have that story for whatever reason, a lot I've, I've had to do this, what I would call autodidactically, where I've had to like teach myself and find my teachers. Uh, The good news is, is that I like eventually found out that there were these things. I mean, I knew there was libraries growing up and and like bookstores and stuff. I mean, now it's on the internet. There are people that that know how to do these things. Like I'm one of them. I'm surprised more people don't ask me like, you grew up hella poor and then you like made millions and own four companies now and like have owned other companies. And like, 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 how did you do that? You'd be surprised that how very few people actually sincerely ask me that question. They assume I'm either lucky or like, I, I don't know what they assume. I'm a trust fund baby. they, They assume something. I don't get asked that question as much as you would imagine. Um, so no, I didn't have a mentor, but if I had to say, who some of my mentors were, they were in books. And it was Robert Kiyosaki, who happens to be from Hilo, uh, which is right mm-hmm. where I live now uh, on, you know, my, I have business in Hilo. And then I have my, my 86 acre farm about 17 miles North of there of all places. And uh, I would say Anthony Robbins uh, growing up uh, was also a big influence. I remember like listening to his audio cassettes and copying his vocal tonality and his intensity. And like, you know, before this call, I'm like, you know, getting my body awake. Cause I got very little sleep last night. And so I learned these, you know, little different techniques that really made an impact on my life. Was it my sole answer? No. Uh, it, it could books fully prepare you not at all, you know, but it could get you started. It could make you feel like you're not alone on that journey because entrepreneurship in the beginning could really make you feel alone. And because a lot of times you're around others that are you're working with that maybe aren't so entrepreneurial minded. So, you know, uh, it makes you question your own sanity oftentimes. And I still do. I'm like, am I going the right way? Is this like some harebrained idea I've got or is it really going to work? Well, you're you, me, Julie, all entrepreneurs are certifiably psycho. I mean, there, there is no <laughs> rational reason to to do what we do for a living. That, that that makes no sense. It's the the thing you said was funny. Without that mentor, I think the the part that you know we really think is important is you probably not only you're motivated because you want to get to where you wanted to get to and make your money and do your thing, but you had your team that was depending on you to lead them on these sales, right? And you had to make them believe that you had this totally under control and you didn't want to disappoint them. 
And if you believe in them and they believe in you, you're going to have a really great synergistic thing happen. And so even though it wasn't a mentor, you just had that responsibility. Probably most entrepreneurs have that. They have responsibility to their people and their team. Did you feel like that was a motivating factor? It was. I wanted everybody to have kind of what I had. And a lot of them got close. I mean, I had people that were working for me that were making a quarter million dollars. One of the guys that still works for me today in Student Loan Tutor uh, you know, was making about that at, at 19. So that was really exciting. I, I jokingly say I was like a blue collar version of the Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, thank God I didn't get into, you know, uh, financing all of that until much later in life. I don't think I'd be alive today on this podcast. So there was some divine wisdom there, <laughs> alive or free. I don't know. I, I I didn't, I was never able to cheat people. That was something that never, never came up for me, even along the whole, the whole way. If I thought I was like signing people up for something that was worse, I was never able to do that. So that's a, that's a really great uh, uh, trait that I had that really curbed what I could do. Cause I see people doing shady stuff, making lots of money. And it's challenging. Cause I've met some of these people and I'm like, man, like if only I could get my, and for a while I thought it was a flaw. And I'm like, if I could only get myself to do that. And I just, I just couldn't do it. And I couldn't underpay people. Excuse me. I would actually often overpay people, which was an issue. Uh, and I, I think this comes down to a major, major key point. There is a major difference. And I, and I can't stress this enough. There is a major difference between being able to earn large amounts of money and then knowing what to do with that money. And what to do with that money requires a team of people that understand how to play that game. And that game is a very different game. Otherwise, you just have that pipeline running and you have no idea what to do to keep it. It's hitting you and people are coming. It's like vultures. They're coming out and they'll find ways to creatively take it all from you. And they did. And that happened to me multiple times. I've built multi-million dollar companies. This is my fourth time. And it's because I didn't have that piece figured out. Uh, so that's a very key component. And that's, I think, uh, 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 relegated to the realms of people that grew up without wealth. Uh, most people meet these people, people that grow up wealthy. I have a person on my team that's in charge of my market. I mean, his family, you know, has a family home office that manages, you know, billions of dollars. Like he grew up with a private jet, you know, I mean, his family still has that, you know, car collections of Lamborghinis and all sorts of stuff. Those people already have these networks in place. And so this is what was one of my inspirations for, you know, student loan tutor and eventually holistic finance is like, how do I help people that are normally victimized by the financial system? Because just making the money, I wish I could say that was enough. You get there and make the money and then you're cool. I'm a prime example, and I know tons of people. You look at any professional athlete, you look at like Mike Tyson, and you watch how people could become hella rich, hella famous, and then lose it all. And you think, oh, they're just stupid. That would never happen to me. I got news for you. It will happen to you. And even if you don't lose it all, you're losing tons of money because there's a total lack of transparency. Those people in those suits smiling and and and, and making, making you seem like their friend, they're getting paid a lot for that in many cases. You may be one of those few lucky people that meet a person in finance that has high integrity that's going to be transparent. But more likely than not, that person got into finance to make as much money as possible. Uh, and uh, they do that by earning big commissions. And they do that by not generally in their client's best interest. It's it's funny how if you when you come from nothing, it is a it's almost a burden. People cannot generally handle making money because it 
it doesn't necessarily change you. It changes all the people around you. And what they look at you is what you bring to the table. Now it's something that you're a resource for them versus just their buddy or whatever or a colleague because now you have something that they want, a piece of that. So you're, to that point is it's so hard to find that trusted advisor or somebody who you know has the highest integrity that will sit there and they're going to charge you something. That's cool. But it's not yeah. about what they charge you or what that fee is. It's the value that they bring to protect you from those other things. And that's what you're trying to find as an entrepreneur when you start getting some success. Because where, where do you go find that? And you got to find a team. Yep. And you I, have to find a team. You absolutely have to find a team. I mean, you hit a point. I mean, the earlier on you could find that, the better, um, the better vetted they are. Because once you have money, it's real hard to tell. It's like, Kind of like dating if you're like already really wealthy and like you 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 never know if that person's really with you for who you are. You you could think so, but you won't know till the money runs out. But if if you've been with them since you've been on the up and coming, and for me, I'm fortunate in that in that regard where I've been with my partner for almost eight years, and she and I uh met when I was right at the beginning stage of like kind of the worst of all worlds, busy all the time, and like all my money was going back in my business. So and yeah. I, yeah. And I lost all my friends when I became financially successful. You know, they asked me to borrow money. They didn't pay me back. And then they, they got mad at me to justify, you know, like, so, you know, that one time I bought him something and he didn't thank me or, you know, Zach has always been something, something just to justify not paying me back. So, you know, that challenge of like getting out of a peer group just kind of happened automatically for me because like, like, like I almost, one of them tried to beat me up. I mean, it was all sorts of stuff. This is when I was like, doing door-to-door sales way in the beginning. So it's uh, insane. Yeah. And my peer group has changed over the years. Uh, and there, they, it can, it, it's comprised of people from all different walks of life now. And, uh, just people that I find to be really, you know, in, in integrity, you know, not everybody is super financially successful, but, uh, but some of them are, some of them are very financially successful, you know, and, uh, and hearing their stories, um, has, uh, is, is really inspiring, especially people that, made it from, I, you know, I know one person we were having dinner and like he became a billionaire and was from nothing. So it's a cool, it's a cool thing, you know, just having dinner in somebody's house. And that's the story that they share. Yeah. I mean, I've heard it several times and I think the way you said it, it, it brought it to the forefront of mine too. It's you can't surround yourself with just yes people. You have to have one or two of those people that are like, wait, Zach, that's stupid. Why are you doing that? You know, <laughs> and it's those people that you end up respecting and bringing with so much more. And I, you hear those stories, you know, Glenn and I have talked about that all the time. Like the people that don't necessarily keep that wealth or that success are the people that just surround themselves with yes people and not anyone that's like, Hey, wait, buddy, what are you doing? Yeah, no, when you, when you achieve that financial success, there's the, uh, the unfettered, uh, I guess, ability because you never had anything before, the drive to want to spend and go buy those things are just it's it's too powerful. And uh, again, like you say, the athletes and all these people that make all this money, that's just what they do because that's what they grew up with. And all it takes is just one freaking person to say, "Hey, why don't you only spend uh, you know twenty percent of what you make and let let's take care of the rest of this after taxes and saving stuff, and then go." spend like a drunken soldier on that, on that 20%, the rest, let's set it over here for a rainy day. And 
they'll achieve that financial generational wealth, but they just can't do it because nobody's telling them. You know, it's interesting because I think, Glenn, that that it's it speaks to their heart, which I think is really beautiful. Um, uh, growing up in the hood, as I would call it, uh, is people are quite generous. You know, they will give away 100% of what they have. If they have one slice of pizza, they'll tear it in half and share it with you, uh, which I don't see in, you know, always with people that are more affluent. And I think it's that same mindset. And when I first became successful financially, I did the same thing. I would, you know, rent out the um, the entire sushi restaurant and like bring in people and have multi-thousand dollar bill. I would like I would like rent a yacht and bring 400 people on it. I mean, I did. Like, this is why they would say the blue collar. <laughs> That's fantastic. I had like, I just wanted to see people having a great experience. And I think that that's, that, that, that sentiment is really important, but I wasn't really helping them. Uh, you know, I think that we navigate this financial matrix and I think that's so important. Um, and yeah, this is where I, it gets into that nuance piece. I don't know how deep I want to go, but this idea of holistic finance or like holistic wealth. And I think that the attempt of taking money to like spend it all on all your friends is this idea of having some t- some experiential wealth. And I think that piece is, there's something true in that, that they're picking up on. But to do it irresponsibly and not understand that like, hey, I've got to like, I don't live in like, things are parceled off. And if I spend all this, it's not guaranteed to keep coming. Mm-hmm. And like, how do I navigate this complicated web of both making sure I'm taken care of, making sure my family's taken care of? And how do I, how can I still experience generosity and help those around me to navigate this system and to like, keep my friends and family and uh, like, how can I, how can I, how can I keep them all at my table? And that is a big struggle for people that didn't just come from success. And a lot of entrepreneurs, they don't come from success. As a matter of fact, what I've noticed is people that come from families with wealth, they actually struggle into entrepreneurship because they struggle with the the motivation, the hunger, the desire to get there. They might have it because they want to be like their father, their mother, whoever it was, their uncle. Uh, uh, But a lot of them just, I think it really has to be there. For me, I wanted it so bad. I, I I did have a mentor later in life when I was 25. I, I had a lot of examples of what not to do. That's been my thing. I've learned a lot from like uh, what not to do. This person was very low integrity uh, and he was an alcoholic and he lived in this gigantic mansion, drove around a limo and him and I worked together for a year. I didn't close a single deal for him, which is the first time I've ever like failed so, so greatly, but I couldn't get myself to do it because I'm like, this is not an integrity. But I talked to him and I said like, what is it that drives you? And I met him at a Tony Robbins seminar and, uh, and he says, every day I wake up in this village in Mexico and I run like hell from my from my poverty. And what I realized for him is that he was still waking up in a village in Mexico, even though he was living in this gigantic man, uh, mansion. His consciousness had never left that. And it was this hungry ghost that couldn't be fed. So if you have that hungry ghost, how do you turn that into something that serves the world and serves yourself? It's going to be a challenging balancing act. Uh, but, but I think that's so important. I think that's so present in entrepreneurs. That's why they struggle with addiction. There's some, there's some ideas that a lot of entrepreneurs have a dopamine deficiency. So like their whole business is just actually trying to meet this chemical need. I I interviewed a guy on my podcast uh, a few years ago 
Uh, he has two PhDs in psychology. And he wrote a book called Driven, and he talks about uh, this very specific, calls it a driven-minded uh, uh, brain. And you actually could study that, like dopamine's not releasing, so they have to stay in this active mode. And uh, yeah, I don't know if I that's would, helpful for any entrepreneur. Yeah, podcast. I would agree with that a hundred percent. I'd say most entrepreneurs have a severe case of, you know, I always joke around by saying it's a severe case of ADD because. We can't work, operate in a real job scenario. We have to be anarchy all the time. And when we operate like that, everything is just all of a sudden we see the zeros and ones. It's just there's this clarity because we thrive in that anarchy. And it's always about the what's next. But I think what you were saying earlier that I think is important is most entrepreneurs are so busy chasing what's next. They never take time to stop and plan out what they're trying to do evaluate where they've been, where they're at, and for lack of a better term, a budget, right? Like yeah. what are, what are, I'm moving with purpose instead of just moving with speed. And when, when you can find that time, when you stop and reflect and plan, that's a whole different conversation for what you're trying to accomplish. And, and that's something, like you said, these people and yourself included myself, we're so busy chasing, we never sit back and check it out, right? And see what happened. There's this idea of sufficiency. I love it. This woman wrote a book. She's uh, raised more money as uh, for philanthropic organizations from like people that are super wealthy to people that are poor. She wrote a book called uh, The Soul of Money. She talks about this term called sufficiency, which is so valuable. Figuring out how much money do you actually need to meet your sufficiency needs? Because you could only get so far, is my belief, if you're only serving yourself. Like, there's, there's some, there's some part of that. And like, there's a freedom that's not just like you, you oh, that's my sufficiency number. Woohoo. I'm free. But it's this anchor. It's kind of like practicing gratitude exercises. Like you could have a bunch of shit to be grateful for. Like you're healthy. You're listening to a podcast. You have an iPhone or a smartphone of some kind. Like not everybody in the world has that. You've got internet, you're driving a car. Like you have so many things to be grateful for, but unless you like consciously bring your attention to feeling grateful, you won't feel it. So a sufficiency need is, 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 is important because if you know what your sufficiency number is, you could constantly remind yourself, look, I'm making enough for my sufficiency number. And the rest of this, I'm gamifying my financial life and my entrepreneurial life. And when it becomes less about survival and more gamified, you could still, you're a little bit, you're in it like a video game or a movie, but you could pop back out. You're not like having those full, like you're not being pulled in every direction. And so I find it's important to figure out what your sufficiency need is. There's some numbers that say like 90,000 a year, like after that, like you're, uh, I mean, you could buy more fancy stuff, but you're not really getting more of like what would make you happy. It's just like fancy. It's like, it's all decoration. Uh, it's mostly decoration after that. I don't know if that's true. My needs have, are like far in excess of that, but my needs are like serving other people. So when I get stuff for myself, I'm always looking at like, it's kind of like those video games. Like if I'm getting video games, I'm getting it for like, so all the kids could come over and play and it like, they could have these experiences. So whole, my whole life has been about, about that. And that's why people are like, why do you do this thing you're doing in Hawaii? And that's, and that's really part of that. So knowing what that number is. And I think that's where, you know, a professional could help you figure out that number and then help you plan to have that number come in passively. And then once you have that, then like, the entrepreneurial game, it's not like a <laughs> it's not well, like a life or death game. It's like playing with the game genie if you're old enough to know what that right, is. It's, You've got unlimited lives. It's kind of like uh, you know, Bud Fox asking Gordon Gecko, well, how many yachts can you, you know, ski behind? Like when yeah. is it enough is enough? And and the hard part with an entrepreneur is we just have this insatiable drive. I mean, there it's just you have it like whether you make a hundred million, five hundred million, a billion, 
there is no number that's you're going to stop and say, well, that's the number. Because then what's your purpose? Because you hit your goal. So that is a moving target. It's how do you keep finding the joy and the purpose and the give back and all those things that makes your soul whole while you're on that journey? Because again, that's one of our questions. You know, Julie loves to ask it. You know, what is the? <laughs> what's your end game? Right. This is great. This is great. Uh, there's a book actually. It's called uh, Finite and Infinite Games. Uh, I forget the author. It always escapes me. Uh, but uh, I, I'm, I'm now, instead of playing a finite game of like, how am I going to earn as much financial capital for myself as possible so I could make more money than my friends or like Jeff Bezos have a bigger yacht than everybody else. Uh, instead, it's uh, how can I constantly uh, improve my lifestyle? So for me, it's constant and never-ending improvement. The Lee Iacocca model, which I learned from Tony Robbins, like, but instead of like constantly improving my own financial income or my own like success in one industry, uh, it's how do I constantly improve the world and the lives of those that I am touching? How could my vocation be more of a dharma? And then how could my finances, this is an important piece of holistic finances, looking at your money. So your money as an extension of your soul's work in the world. So imbuing your money, your investments with your own soul. So like that, my money is serving my work. Because for so many people, you'll hit a point where your money is actually creating the world uh, that you're living in more than what you're doing for work. You may be a doctor doing something really amazing uh, uh, with your actual time, but your money becomes at some point so much more powerful than your own effort and time. So really aligning that. So my goal is to be a living representation of that type of practice in the world. So my hope is as I continue to age, we don't know how long I'll go, but uh, when I'm on my deathbed, if I'm coherent enough to realize it, is that my life was constantly, uh, I, I'm constantly impacting future generations uh, in, in a positive way. So for me, uh, that I live, I, I play an infinite game as opposed to a finite game. And paradoxically, I had to play a finite game for a while so I could get myself to the point where I had enough time to even play this infinite game. So uh, I hope that makes sense and it's not too it, philosophical. It, it for totally everybody. makes sense. I think what you're basically saying is you achieve that total consciousness, right? Where you're, it's not about you anymore. It's about how you can help others. And if you help others, you'll still make money, but that's way more satisfying because once you hit <laughs> a certain level, what's the point? But why not bring with versus trying to separate from, right? You just bring all the people important with you and then you're in. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause like most of the time I have a product or a service that I'm selling and I'm trying to just figure out what the heck do I charge for this? Uh, it's like, it's the strangest problem. Uh, and like, I'm, I'm complaining recently cause I have to start another company while I'm here in Utah in the next two and a half weeks. Like I already have the team that could do it. I have the people that want to buy it and I'm just literally putting the things together. Uh, I was outsourcing it and the person just kept dropping the ball and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I have to start. And I'm going to have a fifth company with taxes and credit card and count. And, awesome. You know, you know, so, but it's, it's funny to be, <laughs> to be in a situation where I'm like, oh man, I have to start another company to serve. Eventually, if your goal is to really serve clients and it goes back to, it's these same clients, they have a need. And I'm like, I've got thousands and thousands of clients that we've helped with student loans or with other aspects of their finance or their taxes. I know that uh, you come from that world of accounting. And so they also have other needs and I'm trying to, and it, normally I'm, I'm able to send them to other professionals, but in this case, I haven't found a professional to send them to. So I'm having to bring that in house, which is actually how a lot of these businesses came. It came from a need for my, for my, our, my, my clients that are present 
and another business is formed out of it. I think that that's what's happened to Elon Musk on a, like a much larger scale than me. Doesn't even compare. He's just like, there's a need to go to space. Like, let's do fastest that. electric car, and you know, like he just keeps keeps going. You know, you'll probably drop a you know some Cutco knives into the, your network marketing of all your clients because <laughs> you probably can sell that like it's your job now and make a little bit extra. But it, I think what I used to hire people from Cutco yep. way oh, back yeah. in the day. They had a they good training a good program. Yeah, but I think that's what you're saying. You're, you're was you have these ideas, you create more opportunities and for others and you help empower them. And that's really what life's all about, is it not? Zach, all I got out of that, and I loved how you kept going, is there's no end game. Your <laughs> mind is going 30 million miles, seconds, whatever it is per whatever we're in, and there's no end game. You can't stop doing what you're doing because, again, you're doing it, I think your integrity is good, and you're trying to just provide solutions. And when you're doing that, you can't stop, right? You don't want this fifth company, but you can't not do it. <laughs> I, mean, I can't not serve the client. Right. Like I would, I would, if I meet someone that could fulfill that need right now, I would for sure just send my clients to them and not go through this whole process. I remember when like Elon Musk talked about uh, uh, that light rail and how he would design. He goes, here's the design. Someone build a light rail from LA to San Francisco. I've done all the work. I just, I've got a million other things going on. That's kind of how I feel about this other company. Mm -hmm. I'm like, it's going to make money. We just like estimate it's like probably like three or 400 grand the first year. Like, and I'm like, uh, it's like, I just, I, it's like, I don't even need that extra money. It'd be helpful. Uh, but the minute student loans, student loans have been frozen for three and a half years and all my competitors went out of business. And because we were focused on serving clients, we actually grew uh, during that time. Growing was way more expensive than it would have normally been, but the actual number of clients had, had grown. I use this time to to be able to do that. I, I, it's funny because I, I was always looking for an end game. And when my, uh, the third time I, everything kind of came to, you know, crashing down. Cause I didn't know how to manage the money that came in, which was, which was that seed that created the next incarnation 10 years ago, uh, is my end game was I'm going to meditate and become enlightened. So I like converted that ambition into some spiritual ambition and, uh, ended up moving into a tent in the wilderness with no end end game, put all my stuff in storage and like lived in a tent, like doing yoga, meditating and like reading Alan Watts and Eckhart Tolle and other like Eastern spiritual teachers. And I, I, I you know, I was like, maybe this is my path now. I'm going to just focus on my breathing until I die. So maybe, maybe some people that would be really beneficial. I did learn a lot from that process. I do that sometimes. Um, I have a temple that we, that, that was built over the top of a waterfall. So I, you know, I could go there and you know, meditate and it's really beautiful and it's my backyard and it's kind of cool. I don't think you sleep at all. I sound, you sound <laughs> like a total, total normal entrepreneur. Like there's just always something in a hopper. Well, we really appreciate you being on the show today. Do you want to give a little plug? Wait, to your I, company? I oh, have, oh, I have oh, one more question. Yeah. And I think you've talked about it. You just haven't outright said it. What is your superpower? Oh, what is my superpower? Yeah, I remember seeing this on your questions that you asked some people. Yeah, I think that my superpower is I'm really good at not wanting to do the thing. Uh, like, I know a lot of people, they like want to be the one doing the thing. Like, I like, it's it's almost like a weakness. It's like, once I like figure out how to do the thing, it's like, I am totally bored of it. 
I'm like, okay, I like know how to solve this Rubik's cube. I'm not going to like sit there and try to solve it blindfolded or with one eye or whatever. I'm just like, here, everybody, this is how you solve a Rubik's cube. Go solve Rubik's cubes. And like, I have no interest in it anymore. Uh, where I see a lot of people, they get like really obsessed with something and they like want to keep doing it. I do not get tangled up in my work, which is actually kind of frustrating because it's like lonely because, you know, I'm like, okay, that's how you build that thing. Okay. I, I don't want, now that I know how to build it, uninterested. What can I learn next? So maybe my superpower is like, I want to learn things. And, uh, and I'm really good at untangling myself from them and going to the next thing and getting someone in that place to do it and being willing and able and happy to go, you do that thing now, and then putting it into something that that's coherent. And I think it's funny, we started this podcast with coffee. And as you could see, my uh, uh, demeanor has changed. Uh, there's some theories that coffee is actually maybe the leading cause of entrepreneurship. Uh, coffee was actually being drunk in New York in a coffee shop. Um, uh, and that's actually where uh, the stock market came from was during the initial uh, times of, of coffee being uh, uh, drunk. And it was like written on paper. And they're like, hey, this is how we could like parcel together companies and play this wild, wild game, which I think is a finite game, the whole stock market, it needs to shift, you know, there needs to be uh, uh, more than just uh, 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 capital return uh, as as the goal, because eventually there's going to, I think there's going to be an end to what we can convert into capital, financial capital. But it's interesting to see, like, even the natural world is participating in whatever this game is. And uh, yeah, I, yeah they, and I think, she, what were you saying? I was going to say, they not only had coffee, but they're also drinking the original Coca-Cola. So there was all kinds of crazy stuff happening, <laughs> trying to figure it out. That was the next incarnation. Right. Yeah, That's you where go. maybe the the, the the greater industrial revolution right. came from. Awesome. Well, hey, we really appreciate you being on board today. Uh, this is going to be a great, it was a great show. And if you want to put a couple plugs to your companies real quick, when we'll make sure that people want to get hold of you for something they find intriguing, they certainly can do so. Yeah, sounds good. So uh, the, 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 main, the main company is Student Loan Tutor. Uh, and I know that uh, uh, I, I help people that have student loans. I'm my, me and my team are the experts. We know more than anyone about how to navigate student debt, how to pay as little to nothing as possible. It sounds unbelievable. Uh, there is no student loan crisis. It's a crisis of ignorance. Uh, we've saved people hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and it does. it's not just for people that are poor. It's mostly for entrepreneurs. If you're self-employed, uh, if you have an LLC or an S-corp or you're a sole prop or even have options for that, but even if you're an employee, there's ways to navigate, especially high balance student loan debt. And uh, essentially... Uh, we talked about sales. I'm selling money and uh, and then guaranteeing our clients that we save them money. So uh, it's really cool to be able to sell, you know, uh, a dollar for a nickel, uh, which is exactly what I'm doing. And then holistic finance is the uh, the kind of the whole capture piece, and we're transitioning over from being an actual investment advisory company into a more educational platform. So be patient as the website's developing more, but that that's been going for the last six years. So, uh, yeah, if you're ever in Salt Lake City, you can come to Ecstatic Dance. If you're ever on the Big Island, Rainbow Bridge, Hawaii is the Eco Village Farm uh, Retreat Center. And uh, there's a new business on its way. Well, that's what uh, I was going to gonna say. I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to have to have you back on in three weeks to talk about the new business. Yes. Yeah. We've been doing it, but uh, the, the paperwork and all of that has been on the, on the other end. I was just doing the marketing arm of it. But essentially, it's, it's corporate formation with the formation of nonprofits and showing people how to, how to manage that instead of payroll. 
the paperwork. It's the worst, right? Oh God. It that's it. Yeah. You know, that's another thing for entrepreneurs. If you find something that really sucks and people don't like to do it, like door to door or paperwork or a lot of those things, there's there's generally garbage men. Garbage men and plumbers are a great example of of being able to make a lot of money doing things people don't want to do. I agree. Well, again, appreciate you on the show, Zach. Yes, Enjoy and and keep working hard and and having fun and uh, keep creating those opportunities for the people around you that you want to bring with. Take Thank care. Thank you. I can't help myself. That's it. <laughs> well, well, Julia, that was a good one. That was uh, a good one. All right. Well, well, until the next time, this is Glenn Harper. Julie Smith. See you later. At Harper & Company CPA Plus, we just don't care about the numbers. We care about helping you tap into the greatness of your entrepreneurial journey. You deserve a partner who has helped hundreds of businesses go from paying the bills to building the business and lifestyle of their dreams. Go to our website and download our free guide entitled Entrepreneurial Success Formula, How to Avoid Managing Your Business from Your Bank Account. The link is in this episode's show notes.